0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Greatest Games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson, and with us today is Simon Cooper, columnist for The Financial Times and an author of a number of books, including Soconomics, Ajax, The Dutch, The War, and most recently, In 2021, Barca, the inside story of the world's greatest football club. And I should say that if you're in the United States, that book is called The Barcelona Complex. Simon, a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: Today, we go back to the Champions League final at Wembley in May 2011 that ended Barcelona 3, Manchester United 1. Simon, why have you chosen this game?
1: I think it's actually the high point of. Barcelona, of the whole club history, that was the best football they ever played. It was, I think, considerably better than the model of Guardiola's team, which was Craig's dream team, which played at Wembley in 92. 2011 is really the culmination. Guardiola, at one point, says that the first 20 minutes after half time, when they score two more goals, that's sort of what he and the coaches and the team had been working towards. It's the apogee.
0: Mm. Yeah you can't really argue with that jonathan can you
2: no i mean yeah i I'd, I'd been there in both 2009 and then then 2011 and there was you know in 2009 there was this sort of sense of Christ, this is something that i have never seen before this is <laughs> a new type of football but 2011 was even better because if you think back to 2009 uh they've been a little bit lucky in that well not a little bit quite lucky in that in that semi final when they when they beat chelsea um the first 10 minutes of the final United were on top. This game, United was nowhere, They just weren't in the game. The equaliser came from, from nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at half time, Barcelona only created 22 chances to United's four. Um, and there's that famous shot of Ferguson with four or five minutes to go, sitting on the bench with his hands literally shaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of this sort of gesture of impotence. And you know, here's his line afterwards he says, Nobody's ever given us a hiding like that. In my time as a manager, it's the best team we've played they mesmerise you with their passing. So if Ferguson's saying that, you know it's something pretty, pretty special.
0: Yeah, high praise indeed, Simon. I mean this was, as you say, the absolute of nadir of it. It was there. it was Barcelona's nebworth, if you like, to use an Oasis analogy, if I may. But um but he hadn't been at the club long, of course, um taking over and it that final in Rome um in two thousand and nine. Uh, was was fantastic as well. What, what do you think he did differently um, as Barcelona went? I mean, he sort of molded and shaped the side to what he wanted. Uh, what was his approach this season, going into the season? That was perhaps was there anything differently he did, or was it just an extension of what he'd been doing?
1: They had been moving towards a team without a striker, and at the end, Vidic actually, Nemanja Vidic comes on the TV and says it was very confusing because there was nobody to mark. They don't have a striker. So in 2009, Samuel Eto, who Guardiola had actually wanted to get rid of when he took over, survives in the team and becomes a really important player in that side. Then Messi is reinvented as a false nine uh, in May 2009. It's already the way Messi really wants to play. They have a brief experiment with Ibrahimović as a real striker. And then they say, no, we're just going to go radical. And so in this game, you have Villa and Pedro really playing as flankers, as wingers. You have Messi. He's actually quite far back. I wouldn't even call him a false nine. I'd say he's more like a number 10. And he's actually not that present In their play, as he would become in later years, much more of the game goes through Xavi and Iniesta, but especially Xavi, who's the playmaker of this team. And Messi kind of pops up and does these amazing cameos like when he scores. But it's also a team that has had two or three years to really memorise. They're almost like an American football team and how drilled they are. So they have these rules So the five-second rule or four-second rule, depending, where when you lose the ball, you press for four or five seconds. There are cues for pressing, like when the opposing defender turns towards his goal, then you press. And then they also uh, prepare these set plays. And typically, the, the attacks are structured around, we start on one wing, we finish on the other. And you identify a particular weakness of the other team. In this game, I mean... I think the main thing that they do is uh, Ferdinand and Vidic at this time are invincible, and they do what Croatian teams always do against big English centre backs, which is we're not going to put anyone there; we're just going to leave them completely empty-handed, which works very well.
2: And the extraordinary thing about that that it, you know, it, it, it that it can still confound English teams that <laughs> that of course what Hungary did in 1953 that you know the, the, the Harry Johnson, the great Blackpool centre back or centre half. Uh, you know, talking about Hungary's victory at Wembley in 53 and, and him trying to mark Kidakuti, who was sort of a, in a very loose sense, a sort of proto-false nine and sort of saying, I just didn't know what to do. I had nobody to mark. But if I went towards the man I was meant to be marking, there's a huge gap. And, and not being able to process what you do with that. And then here we are nearly 60 years later and an English team still can't work out what you do. Uh, so I think that's partly a failure on the part of British football. But of course, Messi was doing it to a, to a different degree and the intermovement of players around that, that vacuum is, is that much more sophisticated and quicker and, and, and more relentless that it is, it is harder to deal with. Because I, I think something that, it, it may in part be coincidental, but there is a fundamental change in football from the moment Guardiola gets to Barcelona the job. So I think to attribute it entirely to him is maybe not entirely correct but it's a very useful coincidence that if you look at uh, goals per game in the knockout stages of the Champions League from ninety-three, four—the first time when there was a sort of you know, a clear knockout stage after the group stage—up until two thousand and seven, eight, on only one occasion is goals per game higher than three. Since two thousand and eight, only twice has it been less than three. So football suddenly, around two thousand and eight, becomes much more attacking and Guardiola clearly is, is part of that movement but I think there's also something in the way the football's played allows that which I think is partly to do with the uh, the tweaks of the offside law I think it's partly to do with the crackdown on intimidatory tackling mm. uh, and that allows these smaller technical players to be much more influential than, than they had been and Barcelona were the huge beneficiaries of that but Guardiola then takes that to a level mm. that we'd never seen before, and, and, and sort of redrew the parameters of what we we understood to be possible in football. Hmm.
1: I'd agree with Jonathan about not giving too much importance to Guardiola or to any coach, but I do think that, you know, pressing had been around as an idea for decades, but nobody had given pressing a kind of organisation and rigour and a kind of theory written in the textbook of pressing the way Guardiola did. And he made it work better. You also have higher fitness levels. and so. You know, nobody had ever pressed like, Guardiola, like, like Guardiola's Barcelona did. And so to talk about the kind of attacking glory, etc., it's all true, but it misses out this kind of iron organization which nobody had had before, and certainly yeah. not Krauss' original Barca team.
2: I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. The thing that, clearly, they're technically brilliant. And one of the great advantages they have is, and this is partly to do with pitch technology and the balls as well and boots, that the first touch can be taken for granted. That you you're not you're not having to control the ball. It's sort of control is automatic, and that of course allows you to have much more yeah. complicated patterns uh, because you, you don't have a constant doubt in the back of your mind of is he actually going to control this pass? Except that but, the United players can't. Mm. Yeah, sure. I mean, no. I mean, I mean for a, a, a team of Barcelona's quality, sure. Um, that they're, they're allowed to, basically they turn eleven side into five side in terms of the way you you envisage it. Um, but I don't think their technical advantages are so much greater than opponents. So I remember, I, don't, I think it must have been one of the early, I don't think it was this season, I think it was one of the earlier games when Barcelona beat Arsenal. And it was a game when Barcelona went 2-0 up and Arsenal came back to 2-2 at the Emirates. And so sort of watching thing, actually, Arsenal aren't that far behind Barcelona in terms of technical ability. The big difference, the thing that set that first hour of that game apart was Barca just pressed much better. Arsenal never had a second. And it was the pressing that, that really made the, mm. the great difference as well as the, the technical ability.
1: And it's a pressing they later lost, um, firstly as Messi ages. And then you have an attack of, you know, in the next glory period of Messi, Naima Suarez, which is not, just not willing to do that kind of pressing work. So this is also the apogee of the, the pressing era.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course you couldn't really do that when you had Ibrahimovic or even with Thierry Henry. They're just not players you know, physically, mentally, emotionally equipped to do that. Whereas you know, one of the strengths of this team, and David Villa obviously has, has been brought in, and actually took a long time to to adjust to the to the environment. But you look at how many players in this team have come through Barcelona, who've had that in, instilled in them from you know eleven, twelve years old. So you're know, one of the great. Advantages Pedro gives you is he doesn't doubt that. That's that's the only football he knows. So he will just press. He's not questioning that at all.
0: But it's interesting to talk about this press because. You know, we think of it as you know quite prevalent at times in in English football. Uh, Jurgen Klopp kind of has, has taken that on as well and said he was influenced by kind of eighties English football to an extent and so on. And Jonathan, you talk about um, how Pedro is sort of used to that, but Simon was 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 that kind of pressing style which one can forget about this Barcelona team because you're so mesmerised as Ferguson himself was with the passing and with the technique and so on. W- was that always? Um, In Spanish football and culture, or did it come a little bit later?
1: It comes quite late. I mean, Spanish football is very backward tactically. So they have this idea of uh, la furia española, which is that you just kind of you play at a very high tempo at certain phases when you get emotional and uh, with your patriotic fervor, that can lead you to victory. Except it never did. Mm -hmm. And you know, they Barcelona and Real Madrid always had the money because of their huge membership, uh, which paid subscriptions to import some of the world's best players. But there was no real Spanish tactical school until uh and I know that I grew up in Holland and I'm hugely biased but until (laughs) Crave comes back to Barcelona as a coach in 1988 and that's the kind of year zero of Spanish football and he says as Crave always does we're going to do it totally differently Uh, my way is the best way Uh, I am the kind of Jesus of football (laughs) and the weird thing is it actually works and the teenage footballer in the Masia who understands this best who thinks this is the first person who could, who's ever taught me anything about football is Guardiola. And Krauf plucks him out of the Messia, even though he can't run, he can't tackle, and uh, puts him in the first team. So that's where it starts. And then it becomes the house style. And uh, with almost no lapses from 1988 onwards, that is the way the Barcelona try to play. And then later Spain, because Aragones is um, manager of Spain. And he says, even before Guardiola takes over... He says, look at all these little ball players in midfield that the Masia keeps producing, especially Xavi and Iniesta, David Silva. And he says, you know what? We're just going to stick them all in the team. It can't work. Uh, we're not going to have any breakers. We're just going to have midgets in midfield and we're just going to go with it. And it works in 2008 and it becomes Spain style and it becomes a style of academies around Spain, even of Real Madrid. And
2: of course, the, the irony of, of this sort of being a, a Dutch import is that La Fruiria itself, came out of the game against the Netherlands in the incredibly complex process they had to determine who got silver in the 1920 Olympics <laughs> in Antwerp. Uh, and Spain had been knocked out Then the Czechs withdrew. They had some kind of dispute over referees. So they create this new tournament between the teams who are left and decides who gets the, the Czechs medals, essentially. And um, there's this ferocious Spanish performance against the Netherlands in sort of this quasi-semifinal um, which a Dutch journalist describes as being like the the Spanish sack of Antwerp in uh, fifteen fourteen, whenever it was, uh, and so that you know it's, it's a, the phrase is even coined by a Dutchman like La Furia uh, to describe that. But what what intrigues me, and 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 I, I you know I've written a book on Barcelona as well, not but I couldn't get to the bottom. So a very maybe, good book. Maybe you have. Uh, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> is why Barcelona moved away from that. Yeah, you know, because obviously it had been, been implanted firstly by Venus Michels, and and then they drift away from that before Cruyff's return. So, so what? Why? Are you having had that advantage? Having having seen that? I mean, okay, moderate success in the seventies, but by the by the standards of Barcelona at the time, but it had taken them to a new level. Even the appointment of say Terry Venables was clearly partly informed by the idea: of this is the type of football we want to play. We want to play with a. Uh, an offside trap with a high defensive line with a, uh, a back four. Uh, we want to keep possession. Why do they need Cruyff to return to 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 bring it back?
1: Because it was never fully installed. It was like, you, you know, you try to have a new Wi-Fi installed and it doesn't work and then it breaks and you forget about it or it works a little bit. And in 1974, it works with the Netherlands. You know, they epitomize the style, what you see in 2011 in the Champions League final. It really originates in Amsterdam in the 60s with Krauf and Michels. They manage it at Ajax. They manage it with Holland in 1974. And when you watch Ajax teams of that time, you don't think, oh, this is very backward black and white football where everybody is just rubbish and would never get into the team today. You think, wow, this looks a lot like modern football. This this is scarily 2010s. And then Michels comes to Barcelona. Krauf follows him after a fight at Ajax in 1973. And the first season, they do win the Spanish League, which, you know, first time in 14 years, and Barcelona have been very poor for a long time. It's quite a big deal. But, you know, it's still very amateurish. Um, Nobody else in the team can really play football. They don't even have a training ground. They have to commandeer a local golf, um, um, what you call it, golf course. And so I think there are kind of brief tendencies towards a a kind of pressing Dutch-style game. Michels then leaves and he comes back. It's not a very happy time, most of that period, 74, 78, most of the time when Michels and Kraut were there. So there's a kind of memory of it, um, and there are people who are influenced by it, including Loriano Luis, the youth coach, but it's not really implanted until 88.
2: It's something I, I, in retrospect, uh, and you, you always find this with books that three years later, you sort of realize the book you should have written. And one of the things that I kind of really wish I'd explored more was what seems to me this this great tension in Barcelona, um, which I guess goes back to the to the early seventies. That on the one hand, they like having their distinctive style, they like having this philosophy. And people like Xavi can be incredibly sanctimonious about that. But on the other hand, they look at Madrid and they see the celebrity players there, they see the Galacticos, and they sort of they want a bit of that as well. And they sort of when things aren't going right, they sort of oscillate between the two extremes and they can't quite work out which they want to be. And 2015 was almost a sort of happy middle between the two, that Luis Enrique, having been a, a former Barcelona player, but not being of Barcelona, the fact that he's, he's come relatively late mm-hmm. in his career there, that he's experienced Real Madrid, and he can find this sort of middle ground. And that's sort of the middle ground he's still sort of searching for with the Spain national team, that he wants to make them more vertical, um, that he wants to take them away from the, the very possession-heavy style. Um, but it, it, it's it's sort of I I still sort of think at times you see with Barcelona almost this, the the inferiority complex they have with Real Madrid of thinking oh we we need a big starter to match them and I, and I sort of wonder whether the signing of Maradona in what in eighty two eighty one or eighty two eighty two uh,
0: uh, whether that
2: was part of that and that obviously sort of leads them away from from, from yeah from I mean there's there's Maradona, there's Krauf himself
1: there's uh, Ronaldinho later who they didn't think was the world's best player but then he turned out briefly to be that so there was this history of signing great players and it always went wrong and you know the Galactico thing worked out in Madrid and it didn't work out in Barcelona and I think what makes 2011... Would Ibrahimovic
0: be a part of that?
1: Well Ibrahimovic is coming into a team which is already the best in the world he's not the saviour, mm-hmm. you know Maradona and Krauf brought as the saviour and I think what makes 2011 special more than 2009, as Jonathan points out, is in 2009, you have really significant players who have been brought in. Henri and Eto are not part of the Barcelona way. And it gels. In 2011, you have a homegrown team of Galacticos, the only time in Barcelona history. I mean, no club in the history of the world has ever produced a generation from its academy like that team that you saw on the field at uh, Wembley.
2: Well, seven, play- seven of the Simon eleven came mm-hmm. through Oh, it's remarkable. And so, yeah, players incredibly.
1: who didn't, like you know, Abidal and Villa, are not central to the experience. You know, you you could have you could have had that team without Abidal and Villa. Of course, the Abidal story is very moving, but these are not the typically the the outsider, the bought player is the the hero figure, and this is not the case with that team at all. So you have players who are galacticos, but they also understand all the rules of how to play a position in Barcelona, for example, that you're not allowed to stray. You have a zone, you stick to that zone. So it's... And and then the tactical sophistication, what struck me watching the game is, the first 10 minutes, you know, United don't dominate, but they cause them some trouble. Uh, they it, it, they look a bit like sort of Derby County circuit 1997. You know, it's very much route one towards Hernandez and hoping that he'll take on Mascarano, who's not really a centre-back. And... It does scare Barcelona a bit, and they make the pitch very long, which Barcelona don't like. Barcelona like to play in a 40-metre area. And they solve it very quickly by Sanfio and Iniesta dropping back to the back of midfield. So Barcelona, as it were, move their block backwards, and that space disappears. The midfield ceases to be elongated. And so this kind of thinking in the match, which is one of the reasons why the coach's influence in any team is always exaggerated, because it's players who have to make those changes usually on the hoof, that they do so well, which is also part of the the kind of Barcelona idea, the way these kids grew up in the Masia, which is, as Craig said, football is a game that you play with your head.
0: Hmm. All right, well, let's have a quick break, everybody, and we will talk more about the final itself. See you in a moment. Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard. So, yes, the match. Um, Simon, you've... You, you... Started talking about the game there, of course, uh, Sorry, first I 10 didn't minutes. No no, was no, 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 don't Not at all, not at all. <laughs> well, that, you, you knew when to uh, break the lines and so on, much like this Barcelona side. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, the, the reason why Manchester United, that first sort of 10 minutes, as you say, they kind of go for it, was because Alex Ferguson wanted his side to be a bit up and atom. He He wanted to, to kind of play on the front foot. He wanted to press them high, win the ball back early, sort of the things that, that Barcelona were doing. And, and interestingly, Rio Ferdinand said, you know, years later, and, and he did stress that hindsight was a wonderful thing, but he did say that at the time as well, he disagreed with Ferguson's tactics uh, and said that. And him and Vidic were not sure about uh, Ferguson's approach to this game because he thought they would get outnumbered in in midfield and and so on because Simon after that sort of 10 minute period where the ball was in the air a bit and 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 so on it was then all barcelona in a way that that you don't really see that often in in finals certainly not with with two you know with with a, with a decent opponent yeah. obviously barcelona was superior but it wasn't uh, a, a, a completely unbalanced game so i i suppose my 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 question is did you think that ferguson and his tactics just completely played into barcelona's hands or would it not have mattered what they did do you think
1: i don't think it would have mattered in the slightest so i was trying to do this mental exercise watch re-watching the game the first time i actually watched it as i recall i was in the stadium next to jonathan mm. so we were talking about this 10 years ago there and now again here so rewatching it i thought which united player would get into the barcelona team And I thought you'd probably have Rooney for Pedro and you could, Rooney was a very disciplined player and you could get him to do the pressing job. Nobody else. And the one United player who looks like he can pass like a Barcelona player is Ryan Giggs, who at that point is nearly 40. And obviously, you know, you're not going to put him in the team. But Giggs actually does have some uh, very rapid and clever passes. And that's it. And, you know, you look at people like, you know, Jason Park and um, Chicharito and you thought, these guys would not... You know, they would have been kicked out by the Marseille when they were 14. They just don't have the technical or tactical ability to play this kind of football. And Fonda mm-hmm. also looks past it, you know, playing his final game at nearly 40, I think he, um, you know, he he lets in two rather soft goals, but it's, it, it, it hardly matters, you, you know, Barcelona are just so much better.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jonathan, it, that's, the, the you know, we didn't have to wait too long for the first goal, but yeah, it, before that, I mean, as I say, after that sort of 10 minute period or so, Pedro has a chance, he puts wide, David Veer fizzes one wide, but they were creating an enormous amount of space in front and behind the the Manchester United back four. And again, Ferdinand years later said, when he was in the game, his head was spinning. It was just so confusing, the whole affair.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I do wonder... I mean, I I, I don't really wonder that hard, but I do wonder (laughs) a little bit if it might have been a slightly different dynamic if Dan Fletcher hadn't been... Yeah, he was on the bench... Yeah, but he, he, was, you know, he wasn't fully... You know, he obviously wasn't fit enough to start because he, he had a great season that season. Mm-hmm. And so when, when the middle of the midfield is Carrick and Giggs, it does restrict how aggressive you can be. Um, and you know, I remember Carrick talking about 2009. And, and this is when I, when I say Guardiola changed the parameters of what we recognise to be possible. that I, I think the the possessions that's not that game It's only something like 59-41 in Barca's favour for, for the 2009 final. This one is 65-35 at the end. Uh, sixty three thirty seven, but that that's that fifty nine forty one from two thousand and nine. At the time, felt incredible. Yeah, yeah. I I never seen Manchester United not being able to get the ball. And Michael Carrick said that they felt humiliated because he didn't have a ball. And they're like, with Manchester United, we have to have a ball. And so that's why they lost lost discipline, lost the shape. And I think over the last decade, teams have realised that actually, you know, you can. You can sit deep and, and and you can let the opposition have the ball. And if if you have twenty five percent of the ball, you can still win the game, and you still legitimately say that, in some sense, you have controlled the game. Um, but that wasn't the case here. And Barcelona just felt utterly superior, um, and it did just feel that the, the way that sort of first ten, 10 minutes went, it, it was a little bit like Rome, where you sort of mm. thought, oh, United actually going to. In in Rome, I saw United on top. United going to win this quite comfortably. Mm. And then suddenly it flips uh, with you know with the Eto goal after nine minutes. Here there's sort of a gradual Barcelona stepping it up, and I do wonder. And again, this is something I, I certainly didn't think at the time, but with hindsight, the issues Guardiola's had in the Champions League, I, I wonder if in, even here, and in two thousand and nine, his intensity, his anxiety, whether that does transmit itself to an extent to players. But in two thousand and nine. He put together a video for them set to the Gladiator theme tune, which the players sort of said, Oh yeah, I got us really up for it. it. Didn't really look like it in the first eight minutes. It looked like you were far too up for it. And <laughs> you, you sort of lost the sort of mental discipline that was such a key part of the game. Then I, I think it was before the um was it against before the semi-final No, it was, it was semi-final 2010, uh the second leg against Inter. Yeah. Uh Guardiola put together another montage which he decided not to show them because he's worried about tipping them over the emotional edge. Mm-hmm. So I, I do wonder if that first seminar is, is, a, is a function of that anxiety. But I mean, that's a, sort of an idle thought that I can't prove one way or the other based on, based on hindsight.
0: Yeah, well, it's funny when we compare a lot to that 2009 final. But so, Simon, mean, you know, 2009, it was, from, from my memory, certainly the two best teams in Europe you know, meeting in the final, and it was very much, oh, yes, Barcelona are the best team in Europe, Manchester United are second best. This game, it felt like Barcelona are playing a different sport to Manchester United. I mean, they, they were so dominant and superior. And that was showed in the first goal when Pedro puts them 1-0 up. I mean, the, the way the midfield just seemed to knock the ball about so calmly. And then they find Xavi who moves forward and just... Again, it, they make it look so easy. It's this sort of almost definition of skill, isn't it? They flicks the ball to Pedro, who who slots it in to make it one nil, and they make it so simple to undo the Premier League champions.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a confluence of talent that's never going to happen again. This is the World Cup winners of you know eleven months, ten months before, plus Messi. So <laughs> yeah. what are you going to do like that? <laughs> It's, um, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, you look at the talent, you look at the interpassing in midfield and you think, yeah, Savvy to yes' to Busquets, to Messi. How are you going to win that ball?
0: Yeah.
1: And, I mean, it, it's again interesting in the comparison with when United try to pass, which they almost never can. And they're always in a hurry because they're being pressed. So the guy will give a, uh, a kind of knee height pass to a teammate who will fail to control it. Fair enough. Inece at one point gives this kind of, um, you know, thigh, he hits a thigh height bullet at Messi from about five yards. And of course, you know, Messi taps its race into the part of Busquets. So it, it's just not fair. And United, you know, they're, they're no fools. They've just won the Premier League, I think. They have played two Champions League finals in three years. You know, maybe Real Madrid of the era are better, but had Barcelona never existed, you know, United are the Premier League, are the Champions League winners. And we can look back at past Champions League winners and say, well, you know, were they worse than United of 2009 11? I don't think so.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a very good point. But Ferguson could have ended his career yeah. on an extraordinary high. You know, yeah, as you say, if Barcelona hadn't existed, they could easily have won three out of four. Yeah, you know, they won in 2008. So let's say they played Chelsea in the, in the final in 2009. Well, you know, they were at least as good as Chelsea. And then um, 2011, they'd have played Real Madrid in the final. So, yeah, again, you'd say that's at worst a 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Ferguson's record in Europe is, is the one sort of question mark over his career, that only to win two Champions Leagues, given how much time he spent at a club of, 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 uh, of such stature. But he, he was really very, very close. Uh, and that's even before you start to think of yeah, you know, all the late nineties exits were yeah, you know, they should have beaten Monaco, they should have beaten um well, there was Dortmund. Leverkusen, Leverkusen, yeah. Dortmund yeah. Um that, that they there were a lot of near misses there, but they just run ran up against yeah, you know, when they were actually at their peak, they just ran up against a team whose peak was way, way higher. Yeah, yeah. But, and you know, some teams
1: that win the Champions League are a lot better than other teams. I mean, if you think of the United team uh of ninety-nine, correct me if I'm wrong, but what it was Blomqvist, Berg. Did Ronnie Johnson play? You know, yeah. there were some pretty unlikely Champions League winners. Who I are, mean, to I be think.
2: fair, two of those probably wouldn't have played had United had everybody available. But, mm-hmm. but yes, the points, the points totally reasonable. Yeah, mm. you know, I and don't they did...
1: think they would have been picked by Guardiola in 2001 <laughs> <so>. thousand.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They'd have been too old, of course. You could um, argue, yeah, <laughs> <enough>, uh, <enough, laughs> <enough. laughs> but that it, you know, it did show a moment of quality in the final. It was a rare moment of quality, but it, but it was one, nevertheless. And it was Wayne Rooney who equalised Jonathan. And he worked tirelessly in that game. And he, he, he stuck to his task. Uh, I mean, he was never going to be on the winning side, of course. But even though for a, for a, a man of his sort of lofty standards, uh, when, certainly in his playing career at least, it won't be seen as a consolation. But there was a moment for him in that final when he, when he slotted that goal in.
2: Yeah, there was. And I actually, I was really struck watching this game back. Um, by how good he is in this game. Yeah, um, that's right. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, Rooney's one of those players who, I, I mean, maybe, maybe this is me misjudging him, but he's a player I always found incredibly frustrating. Obviously, incredibly gifted and capable of doing extraordinary things. But really, after 2004, it never quite felt that he did it consistently enough in the biggest games. Um, and this game, I, I guess it, it happened throughout his United career that He was asked to, you know, in previous seasons, he'd been asked to do Ronaldo's running for him. Oh, yeah, Cristiano can't be bothered. Can you do the running? You you do his tracking. And also do all the other stuff you do. So, you know, he's he's having to sort of work twice as hard as anybody else there. He's doing doing two people's jobs. And here, it's, yeah, can you be the centre-forward and also be the number 10? And if you wouldn't mind being down Fletcher in midfield at the same time. And also, if you could just drift wide as well, that'd be great. He's doing about three jobs here. And the goal, actually, is... Is emblematic of that, that he, he gets the ball quite deep, plays the ball the gigs from a sort of number 10 position, and then runs on and finishes with a sort of Jackie Milburn style finish from the edge of the box. Mm. So, uh, I mean, I don't think he does have a great record in finals, but at least he had that goal, which was a goal he'd created and finished.
0: Yeah. And Manchester United managed to get in at half time at 1 all. Which was quite an achievement, really, without sounding sort of patronising. I mean, even after that goal, Barcelona still had a few near misses, near, near misses, uh near near, <laughs> near misses, rather. Sorry, uh, via squaring for Messi, you couldn't quite at the end of it, and uh, one, so half time one all. And um, I, I understand Fletcher did have a bit of an injury, and again, it's all sort of ifs and buts. If if they could have done anything at all, but. Why do you not think Ferguson really sort of changed it up, Jonathan, a bit? I mean, did he think, right, we're one all. surely we'll click in, surely, you know, we're Manchester United?
2: Um, that's a good question. Uh, I guess maybe he just looked at his bench and thought, there's not much there, this is this is the, the one mm. game plan we've got. And may, maybe he thought, you know, the the storm has passed, the, the worst of it is over and, and mm-hmm. we can come through it. I mean, uh, it,
0: incredibly, you know, he... It, Michael Owen was on the bench for this game, which seems quite remarkable. Well, yeah, Berb- you, wouldn't, you wouldn't bring on no, Owen for Anand, and
2: Anandes, you know, clearly at their peak, Owen was a better player, but Anandes is physically more capable. He's of going course. to give you more in the air. But
0: Berbatov, I think, was their top scorer in the league that season.
2: Again, I wouldn't, was, I wouldn't be trusting Berbatov to do much tracking.
0: No, I think but, they were
1: having a fight and Berbatov wasn't even on the bench.
0: That's right, yeah. That's that's absolutely right. And so he, he looked around at his bench and there's, as I say, there's Fletcher, a little bit injured, Paul Scholes and Anderson. So not too many options, but and uh, skulls
2: way past his best by then.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, as you say, it's perhaps. Um, yeah.
1: I think Ferguson was resigned. I mean, yeah, my anxiety. I, I remember distinctly at the end of the final, thinking this is one of the best, maybe the best performance of football I've ever seen. I'm mm-hmm. feeling very elated, which I think a lot of people felt. And I was looking at Ferguson because there'd been this moment where the ref could have given a handball. Uh, I think Gigs hits it onto Abidal's hand in the penalty area, probably unintentional, but he could have given a penalty. So I was thinking maybe Ferguson's going to do a Ferguson and say, well, we should have won with the ref robbed us, etc." And when he comes to collect the trophy, he's not that at all. He's smiling. He's relaxed. He says, as Jonathan says, this is the best team we have played. Uh, you know, we didn't have a chance. And so I think on the bench, really from the beginning, you know, at halftime probably thinks we might get lucky and get away with this, but he understands that he's for almost the only time in his late career, he's Mm -hmm. playing just a distinctly superior team.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And after 54 minutes, Messi given a lot of time and space, Jonathan scores from 25 yards and it's not a great piece of goalkeeping from Edwin van der Sar. But I think it's just, it's the inevitability about the whole thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's not near the corner. I guess Van der Saars maybe slightly unsighted by I think it's Vidic who gets in his way, um, but it, it, it's it's that uh, attritional process of Barcelona passing that yeah. eventually you get worn down. Doesn't matter how disciplined you are, eventually your, your concentration slips for a fraction of a second, and suddenly Messi picks up the ball, what twenty five yards from goal, maybe slightly twenty five thirty yards from goal, mm-hmm. and he gets a little bit of a run, a little bit of space in front of him, and he can pit the shot. And, you know, eventually that was always going to happen. You know, I, I never really had any doubt that, you know, the United Equaliser came as a massive shock to me in this game. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, right. did not see where that mm. was coming from at all. Uh, and then, the, you know, again, think, you think know, maybe half-time will disrupt things, but it, it didn't at all. There's still that just constant flow. So the fact, it, the fact that it was nine minutes in the second half, it might have been 19, it might have been 39. It didn't really matter. It was going to come at some point.
0: Yeah, and and at Bas at two one, it was all Barcelona. They were the only side who were going to add to the scoreline, and and did after sixty nine minutes. and And David Villa scored scored a lovely goal. And sometimes David Villa, well, perhaps not to to anybody here, but he he can be a little bit forgotten about. If you think of these great sides, you think of Xavi, Iniesta, and Messi would probably be the three that would would leap to mind. But but Villa was such a crucial player in this Barcelona team, Simon.
1: I don't know. I mean, it went through various iterations without David Villa. It coached mm-hmm. fine. I think the decline really sets in when, when Xavi leaves uh, around 2015 and they're never the same again. So, I mean, if, if I had to imagine Guardiola's first names on the team sheet, they would probably be Xavi, Messi, Busquets and maybe Iniesta. But everyone else is incidental. Everyone else can be fitted in all right.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I certainly enjoyed his performance. Well, what, yeah. what about, about Dani Alves? I mean, I'm intrigued by you saying those. I mean, I, I completely agree with those four and, and, and also with the Iniesta slightly on the periphery of that. But you, you wouldn't put Danny Alves in that? In I that just place? think that fullbacks are not
1: essential to Guardiola's Barca teams. So they don't pass out. They don't build through the fullbacks. They try never to do that. They try and build through the centre. You get the ball to Busquets and he circulates it on in midfield. And um, the fullbacks have to do a marking job and keep the field wide. It's later with Bayern that Guardiola says, "Actually, let's give fullbacks more of a purpose because they're slightly pointless, and let's move them into central midfield when we have the ball." So, you know, Dani Alves is the best right back of his time, but it doesn't really matter as much. I mean, the whole game goes through Xavi Busquets, Iniesta.
0: We know also, as well in this side, Javier Masturano has been moved back to centre half. Was it was it this season, Simon, where that happened?
1: Um, I think it happened occasionally, but it was seen as, uh, perhaps, particularly from a kind of British point of view, it was seen as a weakness and a problem to have this little guy at uh, centre-back. But mm-hmm. it, it became the norm and nobody really got past Masculano. I mean, it's hard to think of a player, with a, a defensive player, with a better positional sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, a guy who wasn't fast, who, uh, who had, didn't have great physical attributes, who was almost never surprised in, in this game as well. You, you never see him on the wrong side of the forward.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course Guardiola sort of has experienced that because often, you know, when he'd been a player, he'd essentially been the second centre back alongside Cumin, so he he knew that a a short, slow bloke could do a very good job there if he was smart enough, and Mascherano clearly was.
1: Yeah, I mean yeah. Uh, they had the slowest central defence in history with with Guardiola and Cumin, and they, defenders are always seen as kind of second class citizens at Barcelona. So uh, I remember one of the. Barcelona, the kind of guru of Barcelona coaching, I interviewed um, Paco Cirulo. He said, look, our best defender is Iniesta. Um, nobody can defend like him and then he can pass it out as well. The thing is, we don't put him in defence because we prefer him in midfield. But, you know, kind of any old idiot who can play in midfield can be a defender as well.
0: <laughs> That's the spirit. Um, but yeah, go, go back back to the match. I mean, it ended 3-1, Jonathan, and the result really did flatter Manchester
2: United quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it could have been... Could easily have been four or five one um i and it, yeah, it was one of those nights where you sort of thought, well, in, you know in ten years, I'll be on a podcast talking about this <laughs> uh that you sort of thought, yeah, I've seen something incredibly special that as long as football is played, people will remember because i i yeah, I would agree with Simon, I can't think of another performance remotely in that class, mm. yeah I, I've seen more exciting games, I've seen teams suddenly blitz opponents for ten or fifteen minutes. But for ninety minutes of just controlling a big game, in an incredibly um, aesthetically pleasing way, yeah, it's nothing, nothing close to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Not not Bayern Barcelona eight two, not Liverpool Barcelona 4-0? No,
2: because because Barcelona when they lost eight two were were shambles. That's I mean true. that that eight two was half Bayern being really good and half Barcelona being really bad. I don't think Manchester played particularly badly here. I mean they weren't maybe quite at one hundred percent, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. Less than eighty-five percent say
1: they remain in um, position.
2: Yeah, uh, and yet they were—they were, they were nowhere near them. So, what? Which was the other game? Oh, Liverpool Barcelona. Yeah, and four nil. And yeah, Sunderland it,
0: four, Chelsea one.
2: Jonathan, just throw that in. Well, first half of that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Liverpool Barcelona again. It was. Um, that's a huge momentum shift in the game. And you see one team mentally crumbles, and I don't think. I mean, yes, there was a resignation, but it wasn't that sort of blind panic that you often get when you. Yeah, with these sort of three goal swings in games, it was. Uh, I mean, and maybe that's the nature of a one legged game as opposed to two legged game. That two legged game it sort of feels slightly different. But, um, yeah, yeah. This this was this was the greatest thing I've ever seen on a football pitch.
0: Yeah, well, high praise indeed. I mean, Simon. On that note, surely then one would say it was sort of Guardiola's sort of defining, sort of crowning moment as a coach. He would certainly hope to, to provide another one, but to to, to top this would be very, very tricky.
1: Guardiola was there and yes, he contributed hugely to this team, but it's an incredible team and it was a team that was shaped long before he arrived by a system that he himself was a creation of. So I I don't want to make it too much about him and Mm -hmm. I'd also say that to some degree this is Kraus, brainchild that you see on the field. I think the sad thing is that it was Barcelona's swan song, not swan song, but it was their peak. So after, in the next 10 years, they win one more in 2015. And, you know, 12 years, 10 years on, three of those players, Messi, Busquets, Piquet, are still in the team. So there's a kind of failure of renewal. There's, there's a lack of new blood. And that 2011 game is, it's not quite an ending. But they, they they can't take it any further. That that's it.
0: Hmm. Interesting, Simon. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this game. Thanks very much for coming on the pod. Thank you. Uh, for more stories like that, just check out theblizzard.co.uk. Uh, but until next week, when Jonathan, and I'll be back with another great game of football. Have a good one.